Well, good morning once again, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Um, I just wanted you to know, uh, I know you guys could be anywhere <laughs> right now, and I'm very thankful that you have chosen to be here and uh, put effort into being here. I want you to know your presence and your participation here means a lot. Um, so thank you. Uh, and for those of you who are listening live online or through our live feed, thank you for joining us in this way as well. Um, as I said before, you all should have gotten a bulletin. I want to point out inside there on the inside right, there's a blank space. And that is there designed to help you process this morning's teaching if you want to use that for jotting down questions, verses, thoughts, uh, doodle, whatever you need to do to stay engaged. Uh, by all means, please take advantage of that. And if you're listening online, um, Definitely grab a piece of paper to do the same. Today we are diving into week two of our new sermon series entitled, You've Heard It Said, which is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon Jesus taught considered by many to be the greatest, most powerful and challenging sermon ever given. And uh, this sermon takes place after Jesus had gone through this season of 40 days of fasting and temptations, preparing him for ministry. And it's out of that time where Jesus starts preaching this good news, this gospel, that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And immediately as he does so, people start to follow him. They're drawn into relationship with him. And he continues to start calling his disciples, and then he starts doing all these miraculous healings. People who are blind and demon-possessed, the diseased and the paralyzed. He continues to do this all while sharing this good news. And so the news about Jesus is spreading all over the region. We saw that huge crowds representing different regions, backgrounds, genders, cultures, faiths, beliefs, Customs, education, financial standing, including those of the day who are considered the clean and unclean, all of them are starting to follow Jesus because they are captivated in what he has to say, what he does, how he acts, how he thinks, and how Jesus responds and lives his day-to-day -day life. And so for the last eight weeks or so, we've been looking at the beginning of this sermon known as the Beatitudes. And we saw Jesus begin teaching with this kind of beautiful, rhythmical series of phrases um, that have this kind of teaching that uses this kind of paradoxical feel to them. And it was all intended to paint a picture for us of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And so with each stroke of the brush, if you will, with each rhythmical phrase, Jesus begins to show us how very different God's way is from the way of the world. Then Jesus transitions from the Beatitudes and discusses this idea of being salt and light, where the emphasis starts to shift, in a way, to something more around ownership. And it's doing so in that as Jesus paints this picture, we're now being invited to experience this righteousness that only comes from God in the work of the Spirit. But now the shift is that as, as honorable as it is to experience this, Jesus is starting to call us to really own it, to commit ourselves to this picture, to live it out, to be the salt and light we are because of the grace of Christ for the glory of God. And so in other words, our sermon is going even deeper. It's getting a little more oomph behind it, and it's pressing us into practice and action. And you're going to notice immediately it's going to have a very different tone. It's starting to get real. 
And it'll be really obvious when we look at the scripture for today. So if you have your Bible and you can open it to Matthew chapter 5, that would be fantastic. We're going to start with verse 21. Um, we'll look at some of the scripture from last week as well as this week. Um, so if you do have that, that'd be great. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. The text will be displayed uh, behind me. Let's go. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 20, 21. It says this. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, which my son may or may not have called me last night, will be in danger of the fire of hell, which I didn't read that verse to him. <clears throat> the scripture continues, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her, uh, with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And with that, let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, reveal to us truth within these words. Help us to understand what you're wanting us to understand. Help us not just to understand, but to respond how you want us to respond. God, help us to hear with clarity through your Holy Spirit. And God, help us to be empowered by your Holy Spirit to respond how you would call us to. We thank you that your word is true. And so we pray the truth of your word would be clear to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, hopefully it was pretty obvious that this is not the nice, lyrical, paradoxal feeling language we just spent the last eight weeks in. Um, and last week, if you were here, you got to hear Greg powerfully lead us into this first portion of this new section. And with it, we were faced with a noun to describe ourselves that isn't a noun that we would never want to describe ourselves with, that we need to own, and that's the word murderer. Today, I get to use another noun to describe ourselves that you're not going to like either, and that is the word adulterer. And uh, these are not fun words to describe ourselves with. And before I do, though, I want to help us understand why these words are so important for us to understand. The reason we need to work through this is because we, as humans, are really bad at naming truth, and especially when it's hard truth. If I was to ask you to describe yourself to me, you might naturally share your strengths, you'd share your giftings, your passion, maybe your family of origin, your age, your ethnic background, physical descriptions, etc. But rarely do we share our weaknesses, let alone our deep struggles, right? And as we've discussed many times, we live in the wake of the fall where we shifted from God's intent being naked and unashamed to sin entering the world and now we're hiding and full of shame. And so what we do as humans is we avoid 
and we hide, we even tell lies, and we live out lies trying to depict an inaccurate or inauthentic picture of who we really are. And what's so scary is that every one of us knows that we all have struggles, we all have sin issues, we all have weaknesses, but for some reason none of us share them with anyone. We hide them. And so this shift in this Sermon on the Mount, again, has to do with ownership, and particularly about how we like to avoid the truth or hide the truth so to make us look better than we really are. And so Jesus starts to take this language. You've heard it said, and each time Jesus is exposing the reduction of the law that has occurred under the scribes and the Pharisees and then proceeds to give his own truly authoritative clarification of the real nature of righteousness as it was intended by the Torah. So in other words, even back then, people tried to take the law, the Ten Commandments, and tried to reduce them to make them more obtainable as a way of making them look more righteous than they are. And so the first two examples that we're looking at are the biggest ones that every human being struggles with but likes to hide or act as if we don't. So, for example, we feel pretty comfortable saying we're not murderers because we've never actually murdered someone, at least that I know of in this room, uh, if you have come talk to me. Um, We also like to say, well, we're not adulterers because we've never actually had a physical affair with another person's spouse or with another person while we're married. Ladies oftentimes like to hear this text and go, well, this is clearly about men. This really isn't a thing for us women. But Jesus each time is saying, you've missed it. This isn't just about physical things. This isn't just about one gender or the other. This is about the core of our sinful nature and that there's far more to this than what we're looking at here on the base level. It has to do with our heart. So, Although you may not have killed someone or had a physical sexual affair with another person, Jesus is basically saying, well, have you ever gotten mad with someone? Have you ever judged someone? Have you ever wished ill will on someone or treated them differently out of anger or judgment? Have you ever just looked at someone with lustful thoughts? Have you ever lusted for anything? Have you ever desired your life or even a portion of it to be different in comparison to somebody else? Have you ever found yourself desiring for something someone else had that you did not? Have you ever been discontent discontent with your situation in any way and blamed God or got angry at God about it? And I'll just answer the question for you. Yes, you've done all of these things and more, right? And Jesus says the intent of the law is far more than what we've reduced it to be. And for us to fully understand what it means to be in the kingdom of God, we must first understand our own nature of who we are at our very core. Last week, Greg shared a quote from Dan Allender. It it says this, The nature of what Jesus is saying to everyone in this room is that when you sin, and all sin reflects the issue of lust and anger in some form, Jesus has a name for you, and that is that you are a killer and you are a whore. Welcome to One Life Community Church, right? These are the fun words, right? To which we go, ouch, right? (laughs) These are not appealing words. These are not words that we choose to describe ourselves with. But the question is, do they intuitively describe the nature of our own heart at the core of who we are? Because in many ways, that's the point. 
Jesus is describing and naming the condition of our hearts. And what does he say? He says this. Well, basically, humans, you're, you're good at being faithful at not committing murder. And you can be faithful at not committing adultery and somehow presume that you've kept the law and that you are really righteous. But what Jesus has done here is create a different context where you and I have to face the true nature of what's really accurate about our hearts and that it's far more than what we'd like to make that text out to say. And so last week, as Greg shared, the passage says that when you are angry and you stand against someone for any reason and that anger turns to any form of judgment, you've become a murderer. Why? Well, because anger almost always turns to contempt and to cursing. And that curse is a judgment that we put on another, and it's often something we even put on ourselves. We say things like, you're no good, or you're a fool, or an idiot, or you'll never amount to anything, or you're hopeless, or you're stupid, or whatever it is. Every single one of us struggles with this all the time in every relationship we have, even with regards to ourself. And so Jesus says, along with that, when you lust... And again, this has to do with anything. Although here in the text, it's spoken with regards to sexuality. It's not meant to limit it to one category so that we can feel really righteous. This is for everything. In fact, maybe a way to think of it is this way. We lust whenever we have a desire that's turned into a demand. Whenever desires are in our life that become consuming or prioritize all others. And they become more important than other relationships in our life. If they become more important to you than your relationship with God, then it's become an idol. And this is when lust has become adulterous. And so in a sense, Jesus is here calling our hearts to name the truth that we on our own, in our lack of faithfulness, are unable to actually fulfill the sixth and seventh commandment that he's referring to. No matter how we try to reduce them, we cannot do them. In other words, what is true of you and me is that we all struggle with lust. And if you don't think you struggle with lust, then ask yourself, why are you disappointed with your marriage or your spouse? Why is your heart broken over your children and their behaviors or their lack of desires in certain ways or their lack of performance in certain ways or why they do things differently than you? If you don't struggle with lust, then then why do you wish your financial situation was different? Or why are you not content with being single? Or why are you discontent with how you look or unhappy with your job? Or why do you get so mad when you lose at anything? You name it. Dan Allender says this, and I agree. All conflict on earth is due to adultery that turns to murder. He has a way of saying things, doesn't he? And this is a truth that has to do with everything. It's, it's true of our conflicts that we have with our families and our friends. It's true with our political conflicts and differences. It's true in our workplace and on our teams, in our expectations. It's true in the issues in our world, homelessness, how we parent and raise our children to how we take care of ourselves, to pornography, to education, relationships, everything. 
Now, what's important to know, though, is that underneath lust is something beautiful. It's the desire for union with the God of the universe, the one who created you. And underneath anger is also something beautiful, which is a stand against injustice. So our hearts were meant to lust for the very goodness and grace of God, and our hearts were meant to be angry or to stand against anything that opposes the beauty and glory of God. And yet, let's be honest, right? We have not come to a place where we lust for God. And we have not come to a place where we have put our lives against the very work of evil on this earth, right? Why haven't we? Well, we're consumed, right, with the way of the world, aren't we? We're consumed with paying our mortgage. We're consumed with politics, to getting ahead, to achievement, to recognition, to making that team or our kids even making that team or getting into that school, to getting promoted, to finding a soulmate, or just as simple as just getting our kids to school on time for the love of all that's holy, right? We get consumed. Um, So today, I want us to spend time and wrestle with this idea that our core problem being described here in our text is also our core calling. That what's being described here as a problem is also part of our core calling. What if we were men and women who lust for God in all that we do, who really understood our utter need for God for everything, that we wanted more and more of God above all things? And what if we were the ones that would risk it all to stand against anything distracting others from knowing God? Can you imagine? Which I don't know about you, I can't imagine that. It's hard for me to even fathom that. Now, in order for this to become something of a reality in our lives, we need to own, we need to confess our struggles, our failures, our lust, and our anger in all forms. We need to be able to name our weaknesses, the darkness, the hidden, the shameful stuff of our life with an invitation to know that God is with us in those places, that God doesn't turn his face from us in those places, but rather shows his faithful presence, his absolute grace and unconditional love to us in those places. So, have you ever found yourself feeling disconnected from God? I know I I feel that often. Uh, We feel this way not because God has ditched us, uh, but because like the scene in the garden after the fall in Genesis, we begin to hide from God. Look at what it says in the scriptures when sin entered into the world. Genesis chapter 3. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? You see, we think God has turned his face from us in our sin and shame, but that's an absolute lie. One life today, I believe Jesus is inviting us again to come out of hiding, to drop 
the charade, if you will, to confess what we already know, and that is that we can't do this life on our own, no matter how we try to reduce the intent of God's call on our life. We need to own and confess that our very core, we are men and women who constantly struggle with murder and judgment and contempt and lust and adultery. We don't like saying that, but we know it's true. And we need to own and confess that we have been caught up in the ways of the world. That just like the Pharisees and the scribes who tried to reduce the law to help themselves feel self-righteous, we do the same thing, and we need to acknowledge the lie that that is. We live in such a way that makes it out that as if we can do this life on our own, but we can't, and we know it. And so, so what do we do, right? Thanks, Rich. What do we do? <laughs> well, let's look at what the text says. This is good. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell, which I agree. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For, uh, your, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell, which we all probably go, yeah, that sounds, I'd rather do that than go to hell. But now the question is, is Jesus like promoting physical mutilation to deal with these problems? And hopefully you all can say, no. Thank God, right? What is Jesus doing here? He's using extreme language to make important points. The first thing he's trying to do is press into the cause and that we need to identify the cause and we need to clearly own the cause, whatever the cause is. And second thing he's doing is that he's emphasizing how important it is that we get this, right? That we need to deal with the problem. We need to know that it's serious. And so he uses extreme language. He's saying, whatever that cause is, deal with it by removing it. But ultimately, the thing is, is Jesus is saying, it's not your eyes. It's not your hands that are the real cause of your anger and your lust. The cause is your heart. It's at your very core. Matthew 15, 19 says this, it's for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Comes out of the heart. Matthew 6 says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. When the disciples later asked Jesus, which is the most important of the commandments, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And if you've been here at One Life, you know we've talked about this before, but, but Scripture is clear in that it understood that our heart was the center of all of who we are, mind, soul, body, spirit, right? And so in other words, it would be nice if it, it was as simple as cutting off our hand or removing an eye because that would take care of it. But the issue is our heart, and for us to remove our heart, that means suicide, right? We can't do that. That would be the death of us. We can't do this. So what we need is a new heart and to be transformed from the inside out. And this can only happen through the work of Christ on the cross, through the Holy Spirit of God, through a relationship with him. We can't do it on our own. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So if you want to experience what it means to tremble before God, to feel the glory of God displayed in the face of Christ, then we need to be willing to go to dark places in our life and to name them and to allow the light of Christ to illuminate them as we place them before God. And we need to give God our whole heart so that God can transform us from the inside out. Now, this is not something that just happens. This is not just something easy. So what I'd like to do is invite the worship team and the prayer team to come forward. And I want to give us some space on our own to reflect and respond. Because I believe uh, Jesus is challenging us today as a body. I believe Jesus is saying that our ministry to the broken will only be as effective as our willingness to own and name our own brokenness. That if we want to have a compelling invitation for people with the good news of Jesus, we have to know it and experience it firsthand. Just like your need for a breath to breathe right now to continue on living, we need to own our need for God above all things and to find our joy in that God is giving us that grace in Christ. So as the band comes forward, they're going to be playing instrumentally for quite some time to give us some space. We're not going to do the connection card things. I just want to have space for you to quietly ponder some questions. And I'm just going to tell you now there's a bunch of questions. Don't feel like you have to work yourself through all of these questions. One might stick out to you more than the other, and that's fine. Um, But I just want you to pick one or two to process on your own. Um, Let's look at those questions first before we dive in. Questions to ponder. Where have you tried to reduce the intent of God's law so that you would feel better about yourself? Number two. I know they're all easy questions. Thank you, Rich. Uh, Number two. What and who makes you angry? That one shouldn't be too hard to think about. Number three. What areas do you find yourself discontent, longing or lusting for something else or something different? Number four. What's the condition of your heart? Number five, what are you hiding? Number six, where are you broken? And number seven, what what do you need to own, confess about yourself before God and others? Now, a couple quick notes. Uh, As we process this, these questions, I want to make sure you take this space to pray on your own, to confess, to own, maybe to give thanks. Use this space to receive to be filled, whatever you feel called to in this time. I also want you to remember that confession is something we need to do with God, but it's also something we're called to do in community. But we need to be careful with that, right? I'm not asking you to turn to the person next to you and just unleash, right? I'm not even asking you to turn to anyone right now. But I am just challenging you to say that as followers of Christ, we are to model what Christ does with us and that is to make, remain faithfully present with people and to continue to show grace and love and forgiveness to all people in the midst of their brokenness. Because when we experience this with God, when we confess to him and we experience this with God, it transforms us. But when you experience this in community, it transforms us as well. That's this idea of being salt and light is like. 
And the more we're able to name and own our brokenness, the more we will be able to be salt and light of Christ with others in their brokenness in our community. So, so today as the band plays, again, just take some time on your own to respond to these questions in your heart. Um, I want to point out that the prayer team's up here as well, and they are happy to take the honor and privilege of praying for you in whatever way would be helpful. But I also want to say that if there's something you need to talk to somebody about, you can do that as well after the service or something privately. But just know that my encouragement to you is that this is a safe place. That this is family. That's we're called the body of Christ. And we should be able to own this reality. Because remember, we already know we all struggle. Uh, what we need to do is be able to own that and walk with each other and support one another and encourage one another. So, what's going to happen is, I'm going to close us in prayer. The band will play and give us an extended time. Sit and relax. If you want to write stuff down, if you want to go receive prayer, you can. And then after a little bit, the band will invite us to stand, and we'll sing one last song as a song of response together. And then again, I invite you, don't, don't run. Don't, don't run out of this door and hide. Stick around. Downstairs, there's food. Be in community. Let me close this in prayer. Father, Son, Spirit, we recognize and hear your word today, and it is a challenge. Everything in us is prone to hide and to lie and uh, reduce your word in such a way that we could feel better about ourselves. And first off, God, we know your intent is not to make us feel horrible. Your intent is to help us fully grasp how much you love us and everything you will do on our behalf to have a relationship with us. As we remember your words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Or blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. For the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, and the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the per those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All these things, God, we recognize are just challenging words that help us recognize that we can come to you in our poor in spirit state, that we can come to you in our place of mourning, in our weakness, in our hunger and thirst for righteousness and need for mercy. In all these things, God, we come to you, and God, you lavish your love upon us. You fill us. You give us a new heart. You transform us from the inside out. And Lord, so today, corporately, we recognize this truth. We say we need you. We cannot do this alone, just like we can't conjure up our next breath to breathe without you, Holy Spirit. We give you this time as we process. Help us to know how to respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.